Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with our reading of The Conquest of Bread. Today is an exceedingly long chapter, so I've split it in two, so this will be the first half of the chapter on food, which does seem like an important topic. The rest of the chapter will be in next week, so it'll be a little bit split up, but I'm still splitting it at section markers, so it'll hopefully still read well enough. With that out of the way, let's get started. Chapter 5. Food. Section 1. If the coming revolution is to be a social revolution, it will be distinguished from all former uprisings not only by its aim, but also its methods. To attain a new end, new means are required. The three great popular movements which we have seen in France during the last hundred years differ from each other in many ways, but they have one common feature. In each case, the people strove to overturn the old regime, and spent their heart's blood for the cause. Then, after having borne the brunt of the battle, they sank again into obscurity. A new regime, the Republic in 1793, Labour in 1848, the Free Commune in 1871. Imbued with Jacobin ideas, this government occupied itself first of all with political questions such as the reorganization of the machinery of government, the purifying of the administration, the separation of church and state, civic liberty, and such matters. It is true the workmen's clubs kept an eye on the members of the new government and often imposed their ideas on them. But even in these clubs, whether the leaders belonged to the middle or the working classes, it was always middle-class ideas which prevailed. They discussed various political questions at great length, but forgot to discuss the question of bread. Great ideas sprang up at such times, ideas that have moved the world. Words were spoken which still stir our hearts at the interval of more than a century. But the people were starving in the slums. From the very commencement of the revolution, industry inevitably came to a stop. The circulation of produce was checked, and capital concealed itself. The master, the employer had nothing to fear at such times. He fattened on his dividends, if indeed he did not speculate on the wretchedness around. But the wage earner was reduced to live from hand to mouth. Want knocked at the door. Famine was abroad in the land. Such famine as had hardly been seen under the old regime. The Girondists are starving us, was the cry in the workmen's quarters in 1793, and thereupon the Girondists were guillotined, and full powers were given to the mountain and to the commune. The commune indeed concerned itself with the question of bread, and made heroic efforts to feed Paris. At Lyon, Fouché, and Collot d'Herbois established city granaries, but the sums spent on filling them were woefully insufficient. The town councils made great efforts to procure corn. The bakers who hoarded flour were hanged, and still, the people lacked bread. Then they turned on the royalist conspirators, and laid the blame at their door. They guillotined a dozen or fifteen a day, servants and duchesses alike, especially servants, for the duchesses had gone to Koblenz. But if they had guillotined a hundred dukes and viscounts every day, it would have been equally hopeless. The want only grew, for the wage earner cannot live without his wage, and the wage was not forthcoming. 
what difference could a thousand corpses more or less make to him? Then the people began to grow weary. Quote, so much for your vaunted revolution. You are more wretched than ever before, whispered the reactionary in the ears of the worker. And little by little, the rich took courage, emerged from their hiding places, and flaunted their luxury in the face of the starving multitude. They dressed up like scented fops and said to the workers, Come, enough of this foolery. What have you gained by your revolution? And, sick at heart, his patience at an end, the revolutionary had at last to admit to himself that the cause was lost once more. He retreated into his hovel and awaited the worst. Then, reaction proudly asserted itself and accomplished a counter-revolutionary stroke. The revolution dead, nothing remained but to trample its corpse underfoot. The white terror began. Blood flowed like water. The guillotine was never idle. The prisons were crowded, while the pageant of rank and fashion resumed its old course and went on as merrily as before. This picture is typical of all our revolutions. In 1848, the workers of Paris placed three months of starvation at the service of the Republic. And then, having reached the limit of their powers, they made, in June, one last desperate effort, an effort which was drowned in blood. In 1871, the commune perished for lack of combatants. It had taken measures for the separation of church and state, but it neglected, alas, until too late, to take measures for providing the people with bread. And so it came to pass in Paris that elegants and fine gentlemen could spurn the Confederates and bid them go sell their lives for a miserable pittance and leave their betters to feast at their ease in fashionable restaurants. At last the commune saw its mistake, and opened communal kitchens. But it was too late. Its days were already numbered, and the troops of Versailles were on the ramparts. Bread! It is bread that the revolution needs! Let others spend their time in issuing pompous proclamations, in decorating themselves lavishly with official gold lace, and in talking about political liberty. Be it ours to see, from the first day of the revolution to the last, in all the provinces fighting for freedom, that there is not a single man who lacks bread, not a single woman compelled to stand with the wearied crowd outside the bakehouse door, that haply a coarse loaf may be thrown to her in charity, not a single child pining for want of food. It has always been the middle-class idea to harangue about great principles. Great lies, rather. The idea of the people will be to provide bread for all. And while middle-class citizens and workmen infested with middle-class ideas admire their own rhetoric in the talking shops, and practical people are engaged in endless discussions on forms of government, we the utopian dreamers, we shall have to consider the question of daily bread. We have the temerity to declare that all have a right to bread, that there is bread enough for all, and that with this watchword of bread for all, the revolution will triumph. Section 2. That we are utopians is well known. So utopian are we that we go the length of believing that the revolution can and ought to assure shelter, food, and clothes to all, an idea extremely displeasing to middle-class citizens, whatever their party colour. 
for they are quite alive to the fact that it is not easy to keep the upper hand of a people whose hunger is satisfied. At the same time, we maintain our contention. Bread must be found for the people of the revolution, and the question of bread must take precedence of all other questions. If it is settled in the interests of the people, the revolution will be on the right road. For in solving the question of bread, we must accept the principle of equality, which will force itself upon us to the exclusion of every other solution. It is certain that the coming revolution, like in that respect to the revolution of 1848, will burst upon us in the middle of a great industrial crisis. Things have been seething for half a century now, and can only go from bad to worse. Everything tends that way, new nations entering the lists of international trade and fighting for possession of the world's markets, wars, taxes ever increasing, national debts, the insecurity of the morrow, and huge colonial undertakings in every corner of the globe. There are millions of unemployed workers in Europe at this moment. It will be still worse when revolution has burst upon us and spread like fire laid to a train of gunpowder. The member of the out-of-works will be doubled as soon as the barricades are erected in Europe and the United States. What is to be done to provide these multitudes with bread? We do not know whether the folk who call themselves practical people have ever asked themselves this question in all its nakedness. But we do know that they wish to maintain the wage system, and we must therefore expect to have national workshops and public works vaunted as a means of giving food to the unemployed. Because national workshops were opened in 1789 and 1793, because the same means were resorted to in 1848, because Napoleon III succeeded in contenting the Parisian proletariat for 18 years by giving them public works, which cost Paris today its debt of £80 million and its municipal tax of three or four pounds a head. Footnote 1. Because this excellent method of taming the beast was customary in Rome and even in Egypt 4,000 years ago, and lastly, because despots, kings, and emperors have always employed the ruse of throwing a scrap of food to the people to gain time to snatch up the whip. It is natural that practical men should extol this method of perpetuating the wage system. What need to rack our brains when we have the time-honored method of the pharaohs at our disposal? Yet, should the revolution be so misguided as to start on this path, it would be lost. In 1848, when the national workshops were opened on February 27th, the unemployed of Paris numbered only 8,000. A fortnight later, they had already increased to 49,000. They would soon have been 100,000, without counting those who crowded in from the provinces. Yet at that time, trade and manufacturers in France employed half as many hands as today and we know that in time of revolution exchange and industry suffer most from the general upheaval. We have only to think, indeed, of the number of workmen whose labour depends directly or indirectly upon export trade, or of the number of hands employed in producing luxuries, whose consumers are the middle-class minority. A revolution in Europe means, then, the unavoidable stoppage of at least half the factories and workshops, it means millions of workers and their families thrown on the streets, 
and our practical men would seek to avert this truly terrible situation by means of a national relief works. That is to say, by means of new industries created on the spot to give work to the unemployed. It is evident, as Perdun has already pointed out more than 50 years ago, that the smallest attack upon property will bring in its train the complete disorganization of the system based upon private enterprise and wage labour. Society itself will be forced to take production in hand, in its entirety, and try to reorganize it to meet the needs of the whole people. But this cannot be accomplished in a day, or even in a month. It must take a certain time to reorganize the system of production. And during this time, millions of men will be deprived of the means of subsistence. What then is to be done? There is only one really practical solution of the problem boldly to face the great task which awaits us, and instead of trying to patch up a situation which we ourselves have made untenable, to proceed to reorganize production on a new basis. Thus, the really practical course of action, in our view, would be that the people should take immediate possession of all the food of the insurgent communes, keeping strict account of it all, that none might be wasted, and that by the aid of these accumulated resources, every one might be able to tide over the crisis. During that time, an agreement would have to be made with the factory workers, the necessary raw material given to them, and the means of subsistence assured to them, while they worked hard to supply the needs of the agricultural population. For we must not forget that while France weaves silks and satins to deck the wives of German financiers, the Empress of Russia, and the Queen of the Sandwich Islands, and while Paris fashions wonderful trinkets and playthings for rich folk all the world over, two-thirds of the French peasantry have not proper lamps to give them light or the implements necessary for modern agriculture. Lastly, unproductive land, of which there is plenty, would have to be turned to the best advantage, poor soils enriched and rich soils which yet, under the present system, do not yield a quarter, no, nor a tenth of what they might produce, would be submitted to intensive culture, and tilled with as much care as a market garden or a flower pot. It is impossible to imagine any other practical solution of the problem, and, whether we like it or not, sheer force of circumstances will bring it to pass. Section 3. The most prominent characteristic of our present capitalism is the wage system, which in brief amounts to this. A man or a group of men possessing the necessary capital starts some industrial enterprise. He undertakes to supply the factory or workshops with raw material, to organize production, to pay the employees a fixed wage, and lastly, to pocket the surplus value or profits, under pretext of recouping himself for managing the concern, for running the risks it may involve and for the fluctuations of price in the market value of the wares. To preserve this system, those who now monopolize capital would be ready to make certain concessions, to share, for example, a part of the profits with the workers, or rather, to establish a sliding scale, which would oblige them to raise wages when prices were high. In brief, they would consent to certain sacrifices on condition that they were still allowed to direct industry and to take its first fruits. Collectivism, as we know, does not abolish the wage system, 
though it introduces considerable modifications into the existing order of things. It only substitutes the state, that is to say, some form of representative government, national or local, for the individual employer of labor. Under collectivism, it is the representatives of the nation or of the commune and their deputies and officials who are to have the control of industry. It is they who reserve to themselves the right of employing the surplus of production in the interests of all. Moreover, collectivism draws a very subtle but very far-reaching distinction between the work of the labourer and of the man who has learned a craft. Unskilled labour in the eyes of the collectivist is simple labour, while the work of the craftsman, the mechanic, the engineer, the man of science, etc., is what Marx calls complex labour, and is entitled to a higher wage. But labourers and craftsmen, weavers and men of science, are all wage servants of the state, all officials, as was said lately, to gild the pill. Well then, the coming revolution could render no greater service to humanity than by making the wage system, in all its forms, an impossibility, and by rendering communism, which is the negation of wage slavery, the only possible solution. For even admitting that the collectivist modification of the present system is possible, if introduced gradually during a period of prosperity and peace, though for my part I question its practicability even under such conditions, it would become impossible in a period of revolution, when the need of feeding hungry millions would spring up with the first call to arms. A political revolution can be accomplished without shaking the foundations of industry, but a revolution where the people lay hands upon property will inevitably paralyze exchange and production. The millions of public money flowing into the treasury would not suffice for paying wages to the millions of out-of-works. This point cannot be too much insisted upon. The reorganization of industry on a new basis, and we shall presently show how tremendous this problem is, cannot be accomplished in a few days, nor, on the other hand, Will the people submit to be half-starved for years in order to oblige the theorists who uphold the wage system? To tide over the period of stress, they will demand what they have always demanded in such cases. Communization of supplies. The giving of rations. It will be in vain to preach patience. The people will be patient no longer, and if food is not forthcoming, they will plunder the bakeries. Then, if the people are not strong enough to carry all before them, they will be shot down, to give collectivism a fair field for experiment. To this end, order must be maintained at any price. Order, discipline, obedience. And as the capitalists will soon realize that when the people are shot down by those who call themselves revolutionists, the revolution itself will become hateful in the eyes of the masses. They will certainly lend their support to the champions of order, even though they are collectivists. In such a line of conduct, the capitalists will see a means of hereafter crushing the collectivists in their turn. And if order is established in this fashion, the consequences are easy to foresee. Not content with shooting down the marauders, the faction of order will seek out their ringleaders of the mob. They will set up again the law courts and reinstate the hangman. The most ardent revolutionaries will be sent to the scaffold. 
it will be 1793 over again. Do not let us forget how reaction triumphed in the last century. First, Albertists and the madmen were guillotined. Those whom Minier, with the memory of the struggle fresh upon him, still called anarchists. The Dantonists soon followed them, and when the party of Robespierre had guillotined these revolutionaries, they in their turn had to mount the scaffold, whereupon the people, sick of bloodshed and seeing the revolution lost, threw off the sponge and let the reactionaries do their worst. If order is restored, we say, the social democrats will hang the anarchists, the Fabians will hang the social democrats, and will in their turn be hanged by the reactionaries, and the revolution will come to an end. But everything confirms us in the belief that the energy of the people will carry them far enough, and that, when the revolution takes place, the idea of anarchist communism will have gained ground. It is not an artificial idea. The people themselves have breathed it in our ear, and the number of communists is ever increasing, as the impossibility of any other solution becomes more and more evident. And if the impetus of the people is strong enough, affairs will take a very different turn. Instead of plundering the baker's shops one day and starving the next, the people of the insurgent cities will take possession of the warehouses, the cattle markets, in fact, of all the provision stores, and of all the food to be had. The well-intentioned citizens, men and women both, will form themselves into bands of volunteers and address themselves to the task of making a rough general inventory of the contents of each shop and warehouse. If such a revolution breaks out in France, namely in Paris, then in 24 hours the Commune will know that Paris has not found out yet, in spite of its statistical committees, and what it never did find out during the siege of 1871, the quantity of provisions it contains. In 48 hours, millions of copies will be printed of the tables giving a sufficiently exact account of the available food, the places where it is stored, and the means of distribution. In every block of houses, in every street, in every town ward, groups of volunteers will have been organised, and these commissariat volunteers will find it easy to work in unison and keep in touch with each other. If only the Jacobin bayonets do not get in the way. If only the self-styled scientific theorists do not thrust themselves into darkened counsel. Or rather, let them expand their muddle-headed theories as much as they like, provided they have no authority no power. And that admirable spirit of organization inherent in the people, above all in every social grade of the French nation, but which they have so seldom been allowed to exercise, will initiate, even in so huge a city as Paris, and in the midst of a revolution, an immense guild of free workers, ready to furnish each and all the necessary food. Give the people a free hand, and in ten days the food service will be conducted with admirable regularity. Only those who have never seen the people hard at work, only those who have passed their lives buried among the documents can doubt it. Speak of the organizing genius of the great misunderstood, the people, to those who have seen it in Paris in the days of the barricades, or in London during the great Docker strike, when half a million of starving folk had to be fed and they will tell you how superior it is to the official ineptness of Bumbledom. And even supposing we had to endure a certain amount of discomfort and confusion for a fortnight or a month, 
surely that would not matter very much. For the mass of the people, it would still be an improvement on their former condition. And besides, in times of revolution, one can dine contentedly enough on a bit of bread and cheese while eagerly discussing events. In any case, a system which springs up spontaneously, under stress of immediate need, will be infinitely preferable to anything invented between four walls by high-bound theorists sitting on any number of committees. And that's our reading for this week. Uh, as I said at the top, next week we'll finish off the chapter on food with the rest of the sections. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. You can check out abnormalmapping.com to find information about lots of different leftist podcasts on books, anime, video games, movies. There's lots of good stuff on there. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and all of his other work on soundimage.org. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs> <laughs>